For the most part, in our modern lives, we avoid death as a topic of conversation. We push it to the periphery of our minds and the periphery of our lives, but not at a funeral. We can't at a funeral. At a funeral, we must come face to face with loss. Think about the last time or the last funeral you attended. Maybe it was a family member or a friend. Maybe it was a co-worker or someone you know. We dress up the deceased to make them more lifelike, but the loss of vitality is evident. We dress up or we tell stories and memories that we shared with the person, but the loss of relationship is simply unavoidable. We call it a celebration of life, but we admit that we are gathered to mark an end of that life. We do any number of things to avoid it, to downplay it, and to dismiss it, but the fact remains, death is painful. Death is loss. Loss of relationship, loss of life, death hurts. In 1 Corinthians, Paul calls that feeling, that pain, the sting of death. In chapter 15 here, he acknowledges the pain that death causes, but he also holds out the hope for the day when death is once and finally defeated, and that pain is no longer an experience for us. Read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58 with me this morning. Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Fathers, we're gathered here this morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We've sung of that reality. We've celebrated the hope that we have. And now in our time together this morning, I pray that through your word you would encourage us to anticipate the day when you'll return, the day when death will be defeated and sin will be no more. So, Father, we ask that you would guide this time, that you would guide my words, that you would open eyes and give us ears to hear the truth of your word together this morning for your glory and for our benefit. In Christ's name, amen. Well, for those of you that attend Faith Bible Church, you know that we're coming to the fourth and final week in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here, Paul puts a glorious capstone on the doctrine of the resurrection that he's been talking about throughout this chapter. But if you're visiting with us this morning, let me try and catch you up to speed on where we're at in the book. 
Paul is writing this letter of 1 Corinthians to an energetic, dynamic, and deeply troubled church located in the city of Corinth in the Roman Empire. He writes to them because they've become self-righteous, they've become arrogant, and as a result, they become divisive and fractured as a church with one another. For 14 chapters, he corrects their behavior before culminating his letter in the incredible hope of the resurrection here in chapter 15. It seemed appropriate to cover the end of this chapter on Easter morning as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. As Paul is going to once again reach back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and project that incredible reality forward to a promise for the church. Paul begins with a final declaration here in verse 50 through 53. Look at this. Look at your Bibles. Verse 50, he says, I tell you this, brothers. He starts with a bold declaration. I tell you this. The NIV captures it really well, I think, when the NIV says, I declare to you. He has something to tell this church. He's saying, listen up. Much like a herald would walk into a courtyard and say, hear ye, hear ye, thus says the king. Paul says, I have this declaration that you need to hear, but Paul isn't just a herald of the king, he's also their brother in Christ. He says, I tell you this, brothers. He expresses his affection and sympathy for his brothers and sisters in Christ. It's this common language of affinity, and he would have been addressing both the men and the women in the congregation. And he says, there's this principle, there's this reality that you need to understand on the doctrine of the resurrection. He lays that out at the end of verse 50 and lays out two significant conflicts that we must understand. He says, first of all, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So some of what we've been talking about over the last few weeks as a church He says, flesh and blood is inconsistent with the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood refers to our physical fallen bodies, the body that we live and breathe and move in today. And he says, that body is ill-equipped to inherit the kingdom, God's eternal, tangible empire when Christ returns and establishes his reign finally here on earth. He says, these two things are incompatible. These two things are like oil and water. No matter how much you shake them up, they're always going to separate from each other. They don't mix together. The flesh and blood cannot inherit the eternal kingdom of God. And then he draws a second parallel, and he says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, he isn't so much trying to add something new to this as he is trying to double down and reinforce what he's just said. This perishable, fallen, corruptible body that we know is going to die one day cannot inherit the imperishable, God's incorruptible new heaven and new earth that he's already laid out in 1 Corinthians 15. He's saying these two things are also incompatible. It's much like, I don't know if you've ever had the experience yourself, where you're trying to download a new app on your phone, or you're trying to download an update for a piece of software on your computer, and you get an error message saying it can't download because it's incompatible with your operating system. You ever had that experience? Right? You need a new operating system. And so you go, okay, great, I'm going to go on the internet, I'm going to find the new operating system, whatever the new operating system is. You go to download the new operating system, and the computer gives you another warning. It says, your new operating system is incompatible with your hardware. Your computer's too old. Maybe I'm the only one that has this experience, but I've experienced that a number of times. 
So I can't load the, download the new app onto my computer because my operating system is too old. I can't load the new operating system onto my computer because the computer is too old. The point is, I need an update. That's precisely what Paul is saying here. Your hardware, your flesh and blood, your body needs an update. It's incompatible with this eternal kingdom of God that Christ is going to bring when he comes back. This is what we've addressed over the last two weeks. We need a new embody to inherit the new heavens and the new earth that Christ is going to bring with him. And he's made this promise to believers who have died, believers who have fallen asleep. But here Paul isn't primarily concerned with those who have died. Instead, he's addressing those who are alive when Christ returns. And he lays out an incredible mystery for them in verse 51. See this. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Note Paul's tone here. He's saying this critical piece of information you need to hear. Behold, listen up. Doubling down on that herald idea. He's saying I have an important piece of news that you should all pay attention to. I'm going to tell you a mystery. Now what does Paul mean by mystery? When we hear a term like mystery, we tend to think in terms of books that we like to read, you know, whodunits and TV shows and movies where we find out who was the culprit at the end of the movie. That's not what Paul has in mind here. When the New Testament uses the term mystery, it indicates something that was once not known but has now been revealed to some. Saying the Old Testament saints did not understand this, this had not been revealed to them, but now I have a mystery to tell you. I have something to share with you about Christ. Now what is this mystery? He says in the following verse, he says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Because the mystery is that there's a change waiting both for the dead, for those who have fallen asleep, and for the living that are here when Christ returns. He's spoken of the dead. He says those who, have, those who are sleeping, those who have died having believed in Jesus for their salvation, they're sleeping and they will be, quote, raised imperishable. That's what we've talked about over the last two weeks. But what about the living, Paul? What about those who are still alive when Christ comes back? Is there a change coming for them? Paul says, yes, there is. He says, we will not all sleep. Not everyone will die before Christ comes back, but we will all be changed. Now, we don't know when this is going to play, take place. We don't know exactly how this is going to take place. But we know that there will be a generation of believers alive when Christ returns. We don't know if that will be us or if that will be others, but there will be believers alive. And he says both those who have died and those who are alive will be changed. Now, how will that change take place? Look at verse 52. He says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. He notes at least three things that we should at least take note of here about this final change. First, he notes a final trumpet. Did you note that? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. Now, this phrase has been debated amongst believers for generations as they've disputed exactly what will take place when Christ finally returns. But the imagery would have been very familiar to the first century church. Trumpets announced armies being victorious. Trumpets announced the conquest of an enemy. Trumpets announced the disbanding of an army as a result. So regardless of precisely how you interpret this or when you think this is going to take place, it is an announcement that the end has come. It says, when the trumpet sounds, 
there will be an instant transformation in a moment. Now, I love this term, this moment term. This is actually the Greek word that we get the word atom from. The idea of an irreducible unit, and yes, I know there's protons and neutrons and electrons and all of that, but it's the same concept. A unit so small that it can't be divided into multiple pieces. And he says, the timing, the moment, will be so instantaneous, you won't be able to tell one moment from the next. It will be like that. It will be like, quote, the twinkling of an eye. Not the blink of an eye, not the wink of an eye. The twinkling of an eye. Now, people conjecture that what he's referring to as far as the twinkling of an eye there is the amount of time it takes from the, fact, from the point when the, eye, when the light enters your eye till it hits the back of your eye. I don't know how many of you know the speed of light. Let me tell you, that is very, very quick. It's measured in like nanoseconds or microseconds or whatever you that like science would call it. It is so small, it is so instantaneous that you can't hardly even measure it says, in that moment, we will be changed. The transformation will be complete. He notes it twice. He says, we shall all be changed. And then down in verse 52, and we shall be changed. He said, this transformation for those who are left alive, if there be anybody, will be changed instantaneously. And he doubles down on that and returns to his initial comments in verse 53. He says, for, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. So let me remind you of what this transformation needs to be like. This is what we've been discussing over the last two weeks as a church. He says this perishable, this decaying, this dying body must put on an imperishable body. It must put on an eternal body. This mortal body must put on an immortal body. The dead will be raised imperishable, and those that are living must be made imperishable. This is what we've discussed over the last two weeks together as a church. His point is this fallen, sinful, corruptible body that we now inhabit must be changed when Christ returns. He has made that promise to those who have fallen asleep, to those who have died, and he says, I'm making that promise to those who are left alive as well. His point here is that whether we are alive or dead when Christ returns, God has promised to prepare us to be present with Christ forever. That's the hope he holds out. He says God has promised to prepare us to be present with Christ forever. As we stare at the face of death, that is an incredible truth to ground your faith in. That is a promise that God holds out to those who love Him. And we've discussed this over the last few weeks, how that as individual believers means that we combat fear with faith. There is a faith in resting in what Christ has done for us and what we look forward to when He returns that should defeat fear and should build our faith and our hope for that future. For both those who have passed away, loved ones that have placed their faith in Jesus, and for whoever is left alive when Christ returns. It should also combat divisions and build unity together as a church. Remember, Paul is trying to help correct this fractured, divisive church, and he's saying you should find unity and hope together in that resurrection promise. 
And it is with that eternity in mind that Paul turns his attention to God's promise of a future celebration. And the heart of this text and what we celebrate here on Easter morning, a future celebration, look at verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, saying, when, this hasn't occurred yet, He's saying to those believers then, he's also, it hasn't occurred yet for us here today, but he's saying when it takes place, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, and I love the terminology here of puts on, it it conveys the idea of like buying a new shirt and putting it on. He's like, basically what's going to happen is you're going to take off your old body and you're going to put on this new body and you're going to be given this new imperishable reality. When everything that I've just said over the last verses takes place, Paul says death will be defeated. Death will be defeated when this change takes place. Look at this in verse 54 and 55. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul sees this future transformation as first the end of death's power. He looks back to Isaiah 25 verse 8 that Troy read earlier in our service. He quotes from Isaiah and he says, that day death will be swallowed up. And I love the imagery of that. Death being swallowed up literally means like gulped down swallowed so that it's totally disappeared, it's totally unrecognizable, it is gone forever. Death, the great enemy of every person who has ever lived, the end of every life that has ever begun on this earth, will be swallowed up. When Christ returns and we are changed, death's power is completely vanquished. Death that has reigned supreme since the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 will be vanquished and swallowed up. But in addition to the end of death's power, Paul also says it is the end of death's pain. He adapts this next quote from Hosea 13 verse 14 and he says this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul's confidence here in the resurrection is so resolute. His certainty in the future hope that we have is so sure that he taunts death. Think about that. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul's words here should get our attention. He's calling death similar to like a bee sting. I don't know how many of you are allergic to bees, where if you get stung, it means anaphylactic shock and an EpiPen and the whole nine yards. But for most of us, when we are stung by a bee, it hurts and it's inconvenient, but ultimately we'll recover, right? But for the bee, though it may hurt you, it's a terminal wound to the bee. Paul is saying that's the same thing that's true of death. Death may sting us today, it may hurt us today, it may cause us pain in this life, but Christ has guaranteed that death will die. Christ has guaranteed that even though it stings us today, that reality will come to an end. 
both the power of death in this world and the pain that we experience from death will die. When Christ returns and we are changed, death's pain is annihilated. And Paul can taunt death and say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Because that guarantee of death's future defeat comes from what Christ has already done. And we say that, or we see this in verses 56 and 57. We see that death will be defeated because death has already been disarmed. Look at this, verse 56. First, he lays out the bad news, the reality of this situation. He says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The sting, this pain from death, is from sin. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they sinned in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, that ushered in pain and death and sin into the world. When each and every one of us confirms that rebellion against God and says, I'm going to do my own thing, God, we equally contribute to sin and pain and death in this world. So Paul says, the sting of death is sin. Sin is the source of the pain that we experience with death. Without Adam's sin, without our sin, death would be impotent. Death would be powerless. Death would have no effect on us. But because of our sin, Paul can write in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. Our sin results in pain and death entering into this world result of our sin, just as much as it's the result of Adam and Eve's sin. He goes on from there to say the power or the pain of death is sin, but the power of sin is from the law, and the power of sin is the law. Now, we don't have the time to fully describe this and lay out what he's talking about, but basically what he means is the Old Testament good law of God, when it was given to the people of Israel, revealed, it provoked the sin that was already present in their hearts. You can read more about this in Romans 7 or 8 if you're looking for something to read this afternoon. What he's saying is the law came in and it revealed, it showed the sin that was present in every single one of our hearts, the sin that is caused by our own rebellion against God. Paul lays out here the bad news that apart from Christ, we all, each and every one of us, stand rightly accused under God's wrath under the power of sin in our lives and experiencing the pain of sin and death again and again and again in this world. But, but, look at verse 57. Paul says, but there is good news. And Paul breaks into a spontaneous doxology, a spontaneous word of worship here as he's considering the pain and the experience of death and sin. He says, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul can't help himself when he relays the bad news. He says, but there is also good news. That God had a plan before the foundations of the world, before he created anything. He knew that sin and death was going to enter into this reality, and he was prepared to send his own son to reconcile us to God. Paul said, this was always God's plan, right? He says, but thanks be to God. It was God's plan. He gets the credit. 
but it was Christ's victory. Christ gets the glory. He says this, victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we celebrate this morning. This is why we're gathered here this morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to declare that Christ was victorious over the grave, to declare that Christ's death was sufficient to pay for our sin. And God affirmed that when he raised him back from the dead on the third day. That's what Easter is all about. The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we said it's God's plan, he gets the credit. It's Christ's victory, he gets the glory. But it is to our benefit if we would just accept that gift. See that? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Not thanks be to God because we work it out. Not thanks be to us because we earn our own salvation. Not thanks be to whatever cosmic force allows us to have the power to be holy in our own strength. No, thanks be to God, He gives it to us free of charge. But we must accept that gift. You must accept that gift. In order to have the victory he offers here, in order to have the benefit of eternal life with God, you have to accept the gift of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. You have to turn from your sin and self-dependence thinking you can earn righteousness with God and you have to turn to Christ, relying solely on his work on your behalf, trusting in his work alone for your salvation. Saying, Christ, you lived a perfect life. You died a death on my behalf. You were raised again and you ascended to the Father's right hand as a vindication that God accepted what you did. We must accept this gift to get the benefit of Christ's victory for us. If you haven't made that step of faith for yourself this morning, I would encourage you not to leave today without coming to terms with that reality. If you today are trying to earn your own salvation, thinking if you just work hard enough, you can be holy and you can be better than other people and make it to heaven, this verse says it is not your effort. It is only through Christ's blood as a free gift offered to you. We must accept this gift. Because apart from Christ, we stand rightly accused. Under the power of sin in our life, experiencing the pain of sin and death, again and again and again. But, but through Christ, we are given the gift of victory. Through Christ, we are given as a free gift, victory in Christ. Victory over the power of sin in our lives today, victory over the power and the pain of sin and death one day when Christ returns. From there, Paul moves directly into application. After spending 57 verses in 1 Corinthians 15, laying out the incredible resurrection theology that every one of us needs to understand, he says, and I have a few exhortations for you. I have a few things that I would encourage you to remember in light of the resurrection of Jesus. He says, therefore, look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, in light of everything I have just said in chapter 15, and he doubles down on his affection for this church. He says, my beloved brothers, my brothers and sister whom I love, hear me on this. Let me tell you how you ought to live if you recognize the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he gives them three resurrection encouragements here. 
He gives us three resurrection encouragements here. He says, we must remain firmly planted, we must remain faithfully engaged, and we must remain eternally minded. Look at this, verse 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says, first, you must remain firmly planted. You must be steadfast. You must be immovable. The terminology here is that of being grounded, that of taking a defensive posture, being planted so you're ready for whatever attacks you. Can't help but think of the man who built his house on the rock in the parable that Jesus told. Building the foundation of our life on the truth of God's word and on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, looking forward to that guaranteed promised hope of Christ's return one day, is a firm foundation, is a standing firm on the truth of what we know. He says we must remain firmly planted. We also must remain faithfully engaged. He says always abounding in the work of the Lord. He says as you wait for the return of Jesus Christ, as you live out your life today, do it with intentionality. Live in light of the resurrection. Be faithfully engaged in the ministry and the mission that Christ has given his church. Remembering Christ's resurrection and anticipating Christ's return should motivate us to be in ministry today, to be reaching out to those who don't yet know Christ, to be reaching out to friends and neighbors and loved ones and those that don't yet know Jesus. He says, you must be faithfully engaged. Ephesians 2 verse 10 puts it this way, for we are his Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Then as you walk, as you live in between Christ's resurrection and the promise of your resurrection, you need to be faithfully engaged in the ministry today. And lastly, he says you should be eternally minded, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Remembering that what we do in this life is not futile. We are not, as he said before, those to be pitied because we serve a dead Savior. We live our life, we serve a risen Savior who is currently seated at God's right hand, interceding for us, waiting to bring us back to himself. We must be eternally minded. We must remember that that future hope has yet to be realized, but Christ has promised it. We must remain firmly planted, faithfully engaged, and eternally minded. And as I was thinking through these exhortations at the end of chapter 15 here in 1 Corinthians, I couldn't help but remember some of the coaching I got in high school basketball. I played basketball in high school, and I don't know how many of you played, but one of the fundamentals of basketball is they teach you about what's known as a triple threat position. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And, and, well, thank you. One person does, Okay. The triple threat position is part of the fundamentals of basketball. It basically says every time you receive the ball, you need to be in such a position, planted, ready to do three things. You need to be ready at any moment to shoot the basketball, to dribble and attack the basket, or to pass to a teammate. When you get that ball, you need to be prepared for all three of those things. That's precisely what Paul is doing here. He's saying, as I teach you about the resurrection, that should position you to have a stance where you're ready to be firmly planted in the Word of God, 
You're ready to be faithfully ministering to others around you, and you're ready to be eternally minded, looking to Jesus and his hope for the future. You need to adopt this triple threat position. Paul is encouraging this church, and he is encouraging us to remember that the hope of the resurrection should give us a fixed determination in this life. The resurrection isn't simply something we celebrate because going to church on Easter is a nice thing to do. It isn't something that is so ethereal and so out there that it has no impact on the way we live our lives today, saying, well, someday God will figure all that out, but it doesn't really matter for me today. He's saying if you believe what 1 Corinthians 15 has been teaching, if you rest in the hope of the resurrection, both of Christ's and ours one day, it should give you a fixed determination to live for him today. This is what Paul has been talking about all the way through chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He's been stressing to this fragmented and divisive church that they need to be unified around the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. They need to have unity in the certainty of the gospel that they proclaim, saying, I believe that and I will go to the stake for that. They need to have unity in the victory that Christ has guaranteed to one day come back and establish his kingdom and to turn it over to the Father and say, this was all for you. We need to find unity in our frailty, recognizing that in this life, in this body, we're not everything we're meant to be and we're going to wrestle with sickness and illness and death and pain. But here in this text, he reminds them that we should find unity in our immortality today. He reminds this church that as you look around those that you've gathered with here this morning, those who have placed their faith in Christ will one day be with you and Christ in paradise. If you really believe that, that should inspire you to unity and to love for them today. This is why we're gathered this morning. This is why we're celebrating Easter this morning. You all could be out hiding Easter eggs somewhere. But you chose to come here this morning to declare to each other that Christ is risen from the grave. To encourage each other to live in light of that reality. And that is what Paul is encouraging this church to do, to find unity in the immortality that Christ has promised them. Because it's worth noting that the disciples once experienced the same sort of sting of death that we all experience again and again in our lives. The pain of seeing a loved one die and be buried in the grave. They stood in front of the cross of Jesus Christ who they had professed as their Lord and Savior and watched him breathe his last breath on that cross. As he gave up his life and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he was taken down from the cross and he was wrapped in burial garments and he was put in the tomb and the disciples felt the sting of death in that moment. But three days later, Three days later, that tomb was broken open. Christ emerged from the grave. The Father vindicated Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, and death was disarmed that day. And because death was disarmed that day, we can look forward to the day when death is once and finally defeated forever. 
when the power that sin has over our lives and the pain that sin causes us to experience again and again in the death of loved ones will be vanquished. Paul fixes their eyes on that reality and says, because of what Christ has done, we can look forward to what he will do. He declares boldly that what this church needs to remember is Christ is risen. What we need to remember here this morning is Christ is risen. This is why we declare boldly on Easter morning, He has risen. And that's why we respond boldly with, He has risen indeed. Let's try it again. He has risen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Good Friday is hard to remember because it was the worst day that's ever occurred in the history of the world. As your son was hung on the cross, as he died on our behalf, and as he was buried in a tomb, and death appeared to have the last laugh. But we gather here this morning celebrating that the sting of death has been defeated, that Christ was raised from the dead, that he defeated sin, that he defeated death, and he has guaranteed to one day come again and to usher us to himself, to give us an or to turn away this perishable body and to give us an imperishable body, to reject the pain and the power of sin and death in our world today and to show us a future that has no pain and has no death, and we no longer have to realize that experience. Father, we celebrate that reality today. May it give us hope in the coming weeks and give us hope as we celebrate Christ's resurrection from the dead. In his name we pray, amen.